0: But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at VortexOptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from VortexOptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear.
1: Hey, everybody. This is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast. If you like the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast, we have a show for you. We sit down with local outdoorsmen of Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma to talk all things hunting, fishing, conservation, history, and culture in the Ozark Mountains region. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts to discuss the pursuits of hunting turkeys, bears, and whitetail, as well as the science behind their conservation. Join me and my co-host Kyle Plunkett every Wednesday, and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. You're listening to the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Make sure you like and subscribe
0: to the podcast. You can check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube. If you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash the southern outdoorsman. Now let's get to the episode.
2: Presented by Hunting Exchange, a marketplace for serious hunters by serious hunters.
0: Welcome back, everybody, to another podcast from the Southern Outdoorsmen. We are here live from the NWTF studio uh, at NWTF Convention over here in Nashville, Tennessee. i uh, have got Travis Sumner in from NWTF, and we're going to talk a lot of things Habitat. Uh, which is something that we've been on a kick recently. Again, don't know exactly when this podcast is going to come out, but it's going to be this time, sometime this spring. And uh, this is definitely a conversation I want to have. And just want to say thank you, Travis, for coming in and having a conversation with us today.
3: Thank you guys for having me, man. I'm excited to be here and you know talk about turkeys and habitat and how we can make it better.
0: Absolutely. Well, we got also Michael Pike in, in the uh, studio with us today. Yep.
2: <laughs> he, I'm here.
0: He's uh, he, he's getting a, <laughs> He's getting a full crash course on all things turkey hunting. He's never been a turkey hunter.
2: Yeah, never. So no. this is
0: a bit
3: this deer hunter, but. And see that fall, that falls in the other thing that I do for NWTF. So we got to get him in a turkey woods. Absolutely.
0: Yeah. Well, can you for the listeners? Can you explain kind of what is your position with NWTF uh, first, and then we'll talk about what you did previously. Sure. Before that.
3: Sure. Well. I have a long job title, and I wear many hats at NWTF. So right now my title is Hunting Heritage Center and Habitat Manager uh, for the NWTF. I've been there since 2015, um, so it does carry a lot of load. Habitat Manager, what we're talking about today, is out back uh, on our property. We have 707 acres, believe that, as an education center. So we split it in half so what we have is what we call outdoor education and then we have the psc Palmetto shooting complex so you can hunt learn about habitat work plus you can also go shoot sporting Mm clothes so my job with that is just really maintaining and managing the property out there but then the other great part about my job as we were talking about turkey hunting a little so you know getting new turkey hunters involved is i work with our outreach programs which is getting people involved in hunting Mm -hmm. and we do mentored hunts, learn to hunt programs, um, really trying to get the next level, the next generation interested in hunting. Because if you talk about hunting, and we're all here, man, you can hear turkey calls all over the place. We can go buy all the camo we want. Things that people need to remember is hunting. Is a part of wildlife management habitat management. so if you don't have hunters we can't pay for conservation we can't pay for habitat so that's really what my job is there now and and i enjoy it it keeps me hopping
0: absolutely which gets me to the aspect i want to talk about what did you do previously before nwtf and working with the national wildlife so, Federation? so
3: you know i told somebody when i went to work for and i, I did a lot with nwtf before i ever came um, on board with them. So previously, my career after college, well, I was in the military, then college, and I have a, you know, a course of course, a wildlife biology, wildlife management degree. And then um, I worked for the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources uh, in wildlife management as the biologist there. And the cool thing about my job and where I'm at now, it all kind of felt like it was leading up to being with NWTF. I got in on the wild turkey restoration program target 2000 i was trapping turkeys uh which was great and relocating turkeys uh i then got to trap ducks doves you know all the good fun stuff and management uh i worked there for about 14 years left there uh just making a career change and i went into the private sector so i got to work with private landowners i worked for millican forestry company uh, and then as a full land management company they do forestry they do wildlife uh Easements, anything you can think of. So, when I was working for Millican Forestry, uh, I was their wildlife manager. And what we were doing there was we worked with private landowners. My job was specifically wildlife, but it was also the prescribed burning or controlled burns the guys wanted. So, you know, we'd have people that bought large pieces of property didn't know what to do with it, but they would say, Hey, I want to be able to have a dove field. I want a duck impoundment. I want deer. I want turkeys. So what we did is my job was to go in and work with them, evaluate the property, decide what we need to do, write wildlife management plans. And then it was turnkey. We went out there, did the work, you know, got the loggers in, thin where we needed to planted, built the dove field, planted it. And that was really a fun job. So after I, went through working with dnr and then went through the private land management well nwtf when they started the hunting heritage center which is the property out back they started that around 2015 uh, 2015 and they said we need to get somebody in here that can get this thing set up and can run and do what we need to do so it actually worked out back in the early days with nwtf we were um actually just You know, I helped them with uh, Jake's events and I did rocket net demonstrations when I was with DNR. And then I also work in the industry. I'm on Mossy Oaks Pro Staff, a couple of the other hunting companies, and we were doing hunts together, filming shows. So it actually, when I got there, it was come full circle for me. So the habitat work is the part I enjoy. Um, It's, you know, working with private landowners, I still do that. So it's, I think it's an important role is the habitat side. The hunting part is great, but you got to have an understanding of what habitat management means, too.
0: Yeah, and that's something that we've become more appreciative really just the last few weeks. We've been doing more and more episodes now. Again, I don't know when this episode is going to come out, but in the month of February and January, we've done a few episodes on more at the habitat management side of everything. For not only like deer, turkeys, but just other wildlife, especially right. talking quail habitat, which you know anyone that lives in the southeast understands. The last you know thirty years, forty years, we've had a huge decline in quail, and uh, heard some statistics that potentially at the level we're at now, in the next ten years, to lose another fifty percent of what we currently have, um, which is just unfortunate. I really this sounds terrible. I never cared about quail all that much until I got bird dogs. And just recently at bird dogs and I, I got bird dogs with the idea of i didn't get bird dogs to go hunt on a plantation where it's pin raised birds i hunt i got bird dogs so we can travel around and right. try to hunt wild birds especially in the southeast and uh that's when that, that habitat management side really has now come full circle because as our buddy nick there from the gun dog yourself podcast would talk about is what's good for the birds is good for the herd if you manage it seems like for those quail and turkey Deer are going to be right there with it very strong, especially with what's going on. So, what is like your background when it comes to you're working with the private landowners, you're now doing this for NWTF. The the private land aspect of, you know, what, is, what were some of those things that you were seeing, especially in South Carolina, maybe some of these other states you were working with, of the biggest changes that you had to do on guys' properties, start bringing those bird species back on those landscapes, especially talking quail and turkey?
3: You know, you mentioned a couple things about. Having animal, having the animals on it, whether it would be quail or whatever it may be, and you, you know, you mentioned something. You know what you're doing for turkeys, you're doing for quail, and I remember a, one of my wildlife classes in college, and I had a professor say, you know, we may be targeting one species, and there are certain things you could do for one species of animal, but whatever you do to the property, you're doing it for all wildlife, and that's the great thing about NWTF now. We were focused, focused, focused on turkeys. Well, it's everything, all the wildlife out there. So, to answer your question, I when I tell people and I'd go out and visit with them, and you look at their property, and you're kind of you're kind of like a an artist. It's like a blank canvas. Well, I bought eight hundred acres of pine trees, all the same age, and I'm gonna use pines because I'm from the south. Yep. So, the things you're looking at it, but then in your mind, you're trying to picture it. How would it? look and how does it need to look when it comes to quail wild turkeys you look at their specific needs they need you know all wildlife need food water cover and space that's you know a a mainstay but it's about creating diversity you know being diversified is one of the main things about um, wildlife habitat management is if it's the more diversity you create the more animals you're going to have. So with that age, same thing of pines, I'm thinking, you know, the hardest thing was trying to picture it where you wanted it. But the first thing was a landowner's goals. If, if you are telling me, you just mentioned I like to bird hunt and quail was the main focus. And I'd be, okay, well, we need to be able to thin your pines back. First thing I'd say, well, are you worried about making money off your pines? Or are you worried about wildlife? And they go, nope. I just I want it for wildlife I've got enough money which you know that's funny when a lot of people say that so we would thin it back open it up get some sunlight to the ground where we could get different types of vegetation that quail would need cover that they would need use burning uh, create openings so you know it it was just really picturing it and then you start looking at what do we need do we have cover area do we have waters do we have uh, you know food plots that's always a biggie uh you know other things were people wanted a dove field people wanted a duck impoundment but most of the area would always be around turkeys quail and deer and a lot of the same practices that you do on your property are going to be the same thing getting the right basal area on your trees thinning them out wide enough for your birds uh so you really you did burn or whatever you drum chop that you were able to create those natural plants that quail light or provide the cover that they needed yeah. so that was really the biggest challenge because you're standing there looking at and the other thing is you know how people want it they don't want it today they want it yesterday mm-hmm. you look at them and say don't expect anything for five years yep. it takes that much time to develop it if i if you guys ever come to edgefield i could show you what it looked like in 15 and what we look like in 2022 right now
0: no that would be excellent to see because i think that's the biggest picture i look at i don't currently own any kind of land up but it's very much on my goal now is to own a piece of property we have a family farm and it's kind of interesting to see some of the stuff that we've done down there prescribed fires and, and timber management uh but i'm glad you brought up the idea of the perspective of a southern with the pines because that's something that's very dear, near and dear to our heart being from alabama a lot of stuff that we hunt we hunt a lot of public land it's a lot of pine rotation uh, a lot yep. of stuff, again, they go through 25 to 30 years, they're cutting and they're replanting, and that's the rotation. While the privately, is very similar, you could get some oak, hardwood, you know, mixed forest, but there's a lot of areas that we hunt, that's just not the case. And it's interesting, like you're saying, as a, as a new owner buying a piece of property at 800 acres, and it's, you know, 800 acres of all the same age pines, whether it's 10 year old pines or 25 year old pines what to be able to do to work through and add more diversity to that property instead of being just a monoculture. Um and you talk about the wildlife opens, which I think is huge. And also you mentioned the idea of talking with the landowner, what is your goal with the property? Are we doing this strictly for wildlife or also return investment? Right. I'm talking with the timber stand, because if you have that guy it's like, well I do want to be able to cut in 25, 30 years, depending you know, lobwollies, long leaf, whatever you got. Um how does that conversation go when they want to do a because i had actually we had adam keith on from uh, land legacy we talked about the the opposite is like let's do it just for wildlife we don't care anything about you know cutting again making any money off the property for the guy that does like hey and I, I want to cut and eat again whether it's for pulp or or, uh, or actual uh, mill lumber in 25 30 years what do you what is that conversation like for both on the habitat side say they want to try to add the quail habitat and turkeys but also have a great deer population what does that conversation look like compared to a guy that's strictly like let's focus just on wildlife, not a return on investment?
3: When you start looking at that, look at the amount of acreage that they have. You know, we said eight hundred acres, I've seen up to a thousand acres. And if it's some really good pines and what I'd like to do I'm I'm a w a wildlifer, mm-hmm. uh, not a forester. I would talk I'd get a consultant forester to come in and let's talk about all right, here's his goals. We have two goals here. We're looking at a timber investment. Then we're looking at wildlife habitat. Let's create it. And that was a lot of what I did at Millican because we there were several that were worried about, hey, I want to get some, in 20 years or I want my kids to have this. So then what you start doing is breaking that property up into blocks. You know, let's cut this area back to a certain basal area. Let's clear cut. Let's look at the value or the health of these pines. If they're not healthy, let's let's clear cut this section so then you start working through those pine stands and you start looking at okay we're going to use this basal area, this so many trees per acre but for quail you know you got to get it cut down really low but you still can maintain that through the thinnings rotational thinning then you get into burning you get into herbicide use you can use some of these areas to uh create falla discing. you know natural vegetation you know now's a good time cut rows you can plow down those and and get those ragweeds and partridge peas coming up and it was real simple but you work to rotate you know through your in every rotational timber thinning there was a wildlife management practice coming behind it so we what we were looking at and we convinced the landowner to say hey you know you're going to make money here but let's let's cut this area and it was based on the health of the trees and how much they had you know because if you like you said we walk out there it's the same monoculture it's the same stand Mm -hmm. they're all 15 year old pines they've never been thinned so first thing we're going to do and i've done this we're going to do a thinning we're just going to thin the entire place and then here's some wildlife management practice again it goes back don't expect something the first year let's look at it five years let's look at ten years
0: Absolutely. No, I, I think that's interesting. Again, it's it's not a it's not a flip the switch and everything changes. That's right. It's a lot of work and then time to get it to where you want it to go. And also, even five years, ten years or two, you still get big picture. Especially if you're going to hold onto the property. I know some guys. We talked about this on other episodes. May buy a property. I've seen some land developers. They'll buy a property, you know, 50, 60, 80 acres, hundred acres. Put a, put a pond on it, home site, do some timber sand management, and flip it in a few years. Exactly. Which is a something i thought was pretty new. I haven't seen a lot of people doing that, but I know some guys down in Birmingham that do that and uh, in, in central Alabama. And they've had t- tons of success, but they're trying to get it perfect for it. its turnkey property. Kind of like what you mentioned earlier with some of the stuff that you've done previously in, in the private uh, sector. Turnkey. And it's like turnkey for somebody else to come in and it's already had a lot that's already done to it, which is kind of interesting, especially from a buyer's perspective.
3: And you know, any habitat work that you do on a property, it increases that value. Because I know with when I was in the private sector and we had real estate people there, a lot of people would just buy the land. We would go in and do these setups and then they would flip it. They'd turn around and sell it. I know properties that I've managed at Millican now have been sold and it's it's crazy what the value was just because of the few things that we did. Um, and, and two, when it comes to timber and a landowner, You know timber markets of course they're crazy right now when it comes to pines if you've got a a really good forester and and that's what i would say have a a good wildlife manager and have a good forester so that forester can watch the market Uh, this this will tell you something crazy on the 2,000 acres that i manage in edgefield and i've been helping this guy for gosh 20 something years he came to me and we have a pine stand that has not been first thin those pines are probably 10 to 15, probably six to eight inches in diameter. There's a market right now for chips, pulpwood. Pulpwood. Yep. So they're going to go in, and it's good looking. They're clean underneath. They're going to go in and they're going to clear cut 35 acres of those pines. And I'm like, what? You're going to clear cut? They're not ready yet. But the market was there, and the landowner was happy. But once, hey, if, you, if I had a map to show you guys, this would be a great example. There are different age class of trees on this property, but how they're thinned, trees per acre, this one's gonna get a clear cut. So now we're sticking a brand new bedding area, brand new early successional habitat, boom, just by the timber management. And I think that's where landowners work in conjunction and the wildlife manager works with the forester. So again, we're getting him money, but then we're also creating wildlife habitat.
0: All, all together, absolutely. All together. And it's like that It's that relationship that is what you're kind of working with as the landowner trying to surround yourself with quality people that's going to help you look out for your best interests like that. Yep. Like, hey, they know you They know you, and you're wanting to have return on investment. If they see the market like that jumps, well, why not? Let's go in and cut some. And then, you know, we open up, we add more diversity in an area that, you know, is a, is a monoculture, but we were going to thin it anyways, you know, and probably within a couple of years.
3: And several people... When it came, when it comes to that, several people would go, "Hey, I bought this, but I want a dove field." And we looked at, of course, terrain because you want to be able to get equipment in. And then I said, "Well, why don't we just clear cut this area, and we'll make you some, and we can take that money. You know, we can, you can pocket the money, or we take that money and flip it around and put it into your dove because a dove field's expensive. Absolutely. Or if you're creating one of these weed field uh, open corridors for quail." you know in the south you know how you'll get pines pines and then boom here's this long straight away that you've either fouled this and you got natural vegetation or you've done uh an annual planting of sorghum or egyptian wheat as a street the, those kind of things so it, it it is and one thing that i will say that i learned in this private sector when it comes to a forester work with a forester a, a good when the wildlife works with a forester that is wildlife minded yep It makes it, helps them understand. Not saying that all foresters are bad. I know some are all strictly, hey, we got to make timber money and it's all business. It's all business. But there are foresters out there. And if if a landowner was listening to this, they'd say, look, find a forester that's wildlife minded, also, he'll know what needs to be done and what he can still make you money on.
0: Absolutely. Which, you know, I want to kind of get this back over onto the the habitat side of everything. Sure. What about? I want to get over to, we talked about, you mentioned, you know, guys that might have 800 acres, to 1,000 acres. That's a big property. What about the guys that has that 50, 60 acres or 100 acres, 150 acres? What does that look like for the diversity?
3: That is a, that's a good one. That one always comes up. I just did a, another podcast okay. and I did an article for our magazine and for our, our, our social media that I was asked the questions and they said, all right, small acreage versus big. You can do the same thing. You're just not doing it to the scale. Um, you know, somebody said, "Well, I only have 50 acres to hunt turkeys on." Well, will turkeys stay on 50? Yes, they will. If they've got everything they need there. You can do timber thinnings. you may not create as many open open areas that, as you would on the big acres. You know, rule of thumb that I've, you know, go by 10%. 10% of the total property is what you would you know have open on there or in a food plot or whatever you may need but the small acreage guys what i tell them is just hey let's evaluate what you've got your timber do we need to create an opening do we need to create some corridors do we need to thin and burn in an area and it's the same practices on the large scale you just do it at a smaller level but you have to make sure that small acreage is diverse if he, the diversity in it is the same as a big cuz you know and don't pressure it mm-hmm. when it comes to hunting you know you, you got to be smart how you hunt it and we get that question all the time you know we talk about large scale uh, practices on big properties but a lot of guys don't have it 50 acres
0: i would love to see it's probably already in the works y'all do more especially on the from uh, the video side but also um on the maybe traditional media, like you know newsletters and stuff, of talking more about the smaller properties because that is something it hits home with everybody. I mean, when you look at pricing, it's a lot easier to go buy fifty acres or sixty acres compared to like trying to save up enough money to be able to put down five hundred acres or more, especially based off the region, of the state that you may be looking mm-hmm. in, uh, especially in the southeast. Like you know, and also in the condition of the property. So you know, we talked about this on a couple of episodes about you could buy a, a property that's completely clear cut and start fresh for a lot better pricing you can be something that's completely timbered but you got to know that hey if you're going to do that it's going to be a different kind of habitat you're going to be working with and you're going to have more time that you're going to have to invest in this property before you get it to like maybe a property that's got you know timber that's 25 30 years old especially if you're talking pines um but there's a lot of different options for guys if they're willing to put the time into it and based off those small properties because i feel like the small property Like, property owners are the ones that get overlooked the most. I know Land and Legacy, they do a great job. They're sitting right across from us. That's why I keep mentioning those guys
3: in our booths. (laughs) Yeah, I think I'm supposed to talk with them tomorrow. Uh, Absolutely.
0: So, but like Land and Legacy, you know, they work with a lot of smaller landowners, and also really large landowners. And it's like, those small guys, there's still so much you can do there to have an awesome kind of like little paradise, as they call it, an island, Mm -hmm. in an area that maybe everybody else's is a monoculture. It's like if you can have the most diversity on 60 to 80 acres and everybody else the monoculture around they're not really managing for anything all those deer the wildlife are going to suck to your property they're probably not going to stay there all the time that's right but you're going to have a ton of activity there which is like a hot spot instead of just everybody's so dead set on just putting food plots in well if you have all the quality of habitat around it as well with the food source and food sources you could have so much more wildlife come to that property and hey it's, it's a hunter's paradise
3: you just hit on something that that made me think okay yeah if the food source is on your 50 acres and they're bedding off of you, well, then maybe you create a little bit more bedding on that 50 acres to keep them over there where they don't have to travel off so far, mm-hmm. where that buck may not get shot when he goes over there. It, it is. And and the small acres, even with when you, when it comes to hunting, don't pressure it. That's what I told somebody. And I said, but, you know, let's look at it. Let's evaluate it. Do you have the water? Do you have the cover? Mm-hmm. Uh, everybody thinks, well, first question I said, well, what do I need to plant to keep them here? And I said, well, it may not be. Planting, you may not have the area that you might put in one or two, but let's look at the natural stuff you got there.
0: How overlooked? This is like, oh man, I'm glad you brought
2: it up. I think it's way overlooked.
0: How, I was gonna say, how overlooked do you think it is where guys are overlooking natural vegetation that's already on the landscape in the seed bank that just isn't showing because everything's timbered compared to like they automatically go to, we got to put a food plot in?
3: I think in the early days, guys, when food plot, and I've been in the food plot <laughs> business and I work for a company that sells seed. So I think it got really boosted. Hey, we've got to do this. We've got to do this. That's goes back, you know, I said, evaluate your property, Mm -hmm. set your plan, make a goal, evaluate and make your and make your plans. I think it gets looked overlooked. I am a firm believer when I worked in the private sector and when I got to NWTF, and you talked about the quail. And when we started there and the things that we do, this is one of the key things I think that we're doing at NWTF and on with some of my private landowners, is we are managing the natural vegetation more so than I'm worried about going and planting a tooth field or having clover because that was there before we ever planted the first stitch of clover wheat or a chufa mm-hmm. um and how do we do that i just wrote that if if anybody listening out there is uh, not an nwtf member i write for our magazine um i did we're doing a healthy habitat tips last month i did one on creating um nesting and brood cover simple steps a bush hog and a disc air mm-hmm. are we having to go buy seed and fertilizer no it's amazing what you can do to natural vegetation. And it's all that, you, what you're creating is that is the early successional habitat. Mm-hmm. It's the, the forbs and the grasses that come up it, that wildlife feed on. And you know, it may be gamma grass. It may, and, and you say ragweed, and somebody mm-hmm. starts sneezing. Um, you gotta know, it
0: you gotta toughen
3: it up. to toughen <laughs> it up. Quail love ragweed. Absolutely. And in the south, the month of February is the time when all you gotta do is go find your spot, drop that disc arrow, make one pass, and it, it'll stimulate. what well, You don't know what's in it. And I, I told you, mentioned the seed bank. Mm-hmm. Go out there in the fall or late summer and do an evaluation. Man, I when I was taking dendrology and, and plant ecology all in college, I wish I had the app now where I could take a picture of it where I'm having to go, God, what was that one? And, yeah, yeah. And, and you can do that. And I think it's important doing inventory. You know, when I grew up, hunting in south carolina when i first started hunting my dad would go and fertilize honeysuckle patches
1: mm-hmm.
3: and he'd go take a, a bucket of 10 10 10 throw it on honeysuckle and th- that's where the deer would be and you know fertilization and you can fertilize natural vegetation and you know it is key i think fertilization and we could get into a whole another podcast about when to fertilize and what to do because that's like salt and pepper it's just like your food plots but I think the way you evaluate your properties, doing inventory, find out what's out there, then how do I get what I want that's out there? And I think burning creates that, falla disking creates that, a bush hog will create that. You can mow at certain times throughout the year and you're gonna get different types of plant life growing at different stages um that will be young and tender for feeding particularly in in the spring when we start talking about turkeys um uh, that's an important time because what you're doing is you're one creating some lush vegetation but also you're creating habitat for insects grasshoppers things of that just by simply doing these few things with natural vegetation um and then you're creating if you cut it or with a bush hog at certain heights you got nesting cover when the poults are as they're growing they need that height where they can kind of be down in it but they can see out and that's all it is 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 really doing that i have gotten more so when i go look at a piece of property in the private sector
1: mm-hmm.
3: and he says well do we need a food plot there and i'm just going hold up yep. i said what if we put a small quarter acre food plot here but let's take the other half of this field and let's file a disc it every year mm. let's go over here and go down these roadsides and mow them at certain times of the year let's if you don't have it let's talk about planting some native grasses native seeds pollinators things of that nature i I really tried to you know food plots are important what do we do with a food plot what do most guys what we hunt over it right Um, they're pretty to look at it's pretty to look at legal bait you know legal bait that's a legal baiting area and i think that's what we did there. but i think in our minds too as managers and hunters we still want to look at the overall health but those food plots, like all that wheat, notes that we eat, brassicas we just planted, well, they're growing now. In a couple more months, they're not going to eat it. It's going to be tough. They don't want it anymore. But then you watch what happens. All that new growth comes out of the ground. I think we really need to focus on natural stuff a little bit more.
0: That's been a huge point of some of the things that we've talked about. And also just talking to people that are, are more that route. It's like food plots are great for supplemental feeding, but... The natural vegetation that's already on the landscape is something that it's been producing quality food for for animals and for species for, I mean, thousands of years. It's already there in the seed bank. You just got to bring it out. And that's where I see, like, with especially small properties, talking 50, 60 acres, especially if it's a lot of pines, and maybe it's not thin, they're try, everybody's trying to put a food plot anywhere there's a small opening, which is fine. I totally, I've totally. hunted property, tons of properties like that, especially hunting clubs and leases, because that's all you could really do. But it's like if you could add a little bit more of those natural vegetations and those ragweeds and everything else in the forbs in some of those areas, which is like it's a natural food plot. The deer are going to eat it. You go out there some of the public land that we hunt, that's what the deer are eating majority of the time. And it's uh, it's interesting to now figure out that there's a lot of things that a land manager can do, talking to like the – not even a private sector like a guy like what you used to do uh, but also like what you're doing for NWTF but also just for the landowner himself to do small things that don't cost a whole bunch like you're talking about going out and fallow disc in, uh, in the, you know, February for a ragweed coming in the springtime. There's so many little things that can be done to then kind of boost that quality of the habitat and not rely solely on just food plots which are going to feed animals certain times of year but they don't always offer the cover or the food source year round like some of the natural vegetation will.
3: And those basically, you know, I was just sitting here thinking, I thought well, you, what you just mentioned, you know, we've talked about quail and we've talked about turkeys today and they go they coincide. They they really need the same type of habitat and, and, and the basic practices to work with your native vegetation is phallodisking, a bush hog and burning. Mm-hmm. Um, you can use different varieties of herbicide uh, to get rid of like unwanted hardwoods mm-hmm. and then you, you get into a burning regime. I'm a, a huge fan. If I wasn't sitting here today, I would have a fire pot in my hand if I was at home. And I think burning more so for, for us at NWTF and what we do now, burning at the right time of year to make sure we're getting those forbs and grasses and the things that's going to be important to those animals is when we do it. But And that's a whole nother subject. But you know that burning, that is probably the most cost effective tool when it comes to quail and wild turkeys. Because what you're doing is you're creating food, you're creating cover, and you're providing that nesting habitat and rotational burning. You know, that goes back to the, the even on small acres, man, if you don't burn but five or ten acres, you're doing something. I mean, it's, it's changing the landscape. It's creating diversity.
1: When you think turkey calls, think a Houndstooth. Houndstooth Game Calls is a company based right here in Alabama, actually based out of Tuscaloosa, and they have been making some of our favorite turkey calls since 2012. Y'all head on over to their website, see what they got. They got a little something for everybody. They have a huge selection of different mouth calls, different cuts, different reed configurations. I like to go on there and get five or six different mouth calls and just run them, see which ones I like the most. You know, some days I might like the KB hen, some days I might like the ghost cut. Some situations I might like the country girl call, you know, that I can on really hard where on other situations i might like the all pro that i can get a little bit softer on bottom line there's something for everybody and something for every situation and hey you can get 15 percent off of your order at houndstooth game calls by using the promo code sop24 that's sop24 use that promo code it'll get you a discount and it helps out the podcast
0: it's adding the disturbance which is key and that's one thing we've talked about um just different guests and everything is there's so much less disturbance now in the landscape as it was a hundred years ago. Those different practices for farming and everything else, um, which has changed, and that's one reason why I feel like the last 40 years with the decline of quail, which, you know, that's been declining now for, again, at least the last 30 to 40 years, and now we're seeing turkeys on the same thing, and it's all this emphasis on just a different type of management practice. And now I feel like more people coming back to like, when you focus more on those natural grasses, the natural vegetation, that then is not only going to help the Turkey population, but it's also going to help quail and everything else be able to rebound. It all starts on small properties. You know, we talked to uh, um, uh, Mike Butler from the uh, Tennessee wildlife Federation uh, last night. And we had that conversation, and you know, a question I wanted to ask him was, which we never did. We were, it was a great conversation, but was on public land, almost using some of these big trunks of public land or some of these bigger pieces of private mm-hmm. land as a guide for the smaller landowner of what can be done on a property to add more of these natural species back onto the place. When it comes to vegetation, to then show you like what could you do with this property? Because most people walk into a the property, they've maybe been hunting this place for twenty five years, and they've owned this property in their family for whoever knows how long. And they only see it like that. But when you bring somebody else in who's got more experience on some of these biologists, been working on public land and these bigger tracts of private, they can kind of open the door to these little landowners, smaller landowners, of like this is some things that we can do that you've never even thought about previously so there's a ton of diversity that we're seeing that on our family farm now running fires and doing a lot of timber cuts on a property it's only 89 acres but it's one of the most diverse 89 acres i've ever seen of the different vegetation and everything on this property and it's really cool because it's in that island of monoculture everything else around there's big pine stands uh, that are all 25 to 40 years old and uh, it stands alone and all the deer and turkey everything sucks to it which is really interesting as a smaller landowner
3: and, and you know the, the thing that I see with small land, and I think you just, you, you my brain was clicking right then. And the next thing I thought to myself, you know, we really, I really need to go back and say, hey, let's sit down and let's put together a small how to for small acreages. And they're going to think, well, I've got to plant X amount of chufa. I've got to do all this stuff. And I was like, no, let's look at it, evaluate, diversify it. And then you may not have to do anything but run a disc here or a bush hog. And you got it made.
0: Absolutely. And one thing I've been seeing, it seems like more popular now is doing a diverse food plot system where it's not just one it's not all clover. Absolutely. But it's like you've got you mentioned it just earlier, like doing like a quarter acre natural like your natural vegetation and then a quarter acre like a chufa plot or a clover plot, which is becoming more popular, I see. But also I've seen guys that are doing three or four different species of, you know, food plot or just, you know, seeds along with doing natural grass and everything around the edge of it that has like this super diverse food source mm-hmm. inside of an area that has the security cover and everything else, which is great for your deer
3: Absolutely. and Turkey. Absolutely. And see, that's key. We were talking about, I had a discussion at work one time and I was talking with another guy out back. I said, hey, look, here's some things when it comes to food plots. And we used to do the, I don't. folks may be familiar with the Save the Habitat show and we did a whole series on food plots. Size, how do we make them, what do we plant them with? Well, what we did, you mentioned it, and when it comes to turkeys and quail, think about deer, Um, you guys deer hunting in the south, in Alabama, and most properties you go to, it's edge to edge, it's pine tree to pine tree, or oak tree to oak tree, green, green, green. Mm -hmm.
2: No transition.
3: Thank you. Transition and edge, that's what we're looking for, because they're transition and they're edge animals. And you're sitting there in a the deer stand and you're looking at your watch and in the last 45 minutes, the golden hour, and there's still no deer. Well, why? Because they're not coming till dark. Creating that transition zone, whether it's running a disc around the edges, even on power line rights away. Guys, I did it last year on one our piece of property and ran the disc down the edge, come off the pines, ran it all the way down the edge on both sides, and I had all this natural broom straw Big blue stem, had some ragweed, and it all grew up on the edges. And then inside, that's where I planted my oats, wheat, whatever I was doing. Those deer just, it's the security. They walked out into there. That, from a deer standpoint, it gets them out there a lot earlier where you might get a shot. The second thing is, is a lot of times in late May, June, where is a hen turkey? or that female quail going to take her her little chicks out there. They're going to be in those open areas cuz you know a lot of them will grow up but they'll be out there in that open area where they can bug, they can, you know, pick up anything new vegetation. But think about it, you look at hawks, you look at coyotes, you know, those predators. If you've got this high cover on the sides, they have some escape cover. So you've created that escape cover for them to run into and get out of it. Um, I can't remember who it was was talking about. coyote you know, and Turk when it comes to turkeys, and you know they hunt on sight. And of course, that turkey's looking; it gives them time to run into that edge cover that's high. And of course, the coyote loses sight and doesn't know where they go. Mm-hmm. And if you plant these, and you can do it through annual plantings, we do a lot with sorghum, Egyptian wheat, Sudan grass, particularly when it came to quail. Uh, and we were talking about quail management, and we're running up down these edges with it. But what we were doing is doing it at different levels. So we might have sorghum. We might have uh, winter peas, or not winter peas, uh, cow peas, or cat peas, or partridge peas, or, or not partridge, but any kind of soybean and buckwheat. But it had you had different levels of food, but quail, could work underneath all the stalks and work all the way down there some people think corn's a great one yeah it is but they're going to be eating it on the edge i really like the idea of running that disc and that natural vegetation and i've sat there and watched the deer feed on it and not all this pretty green stuff i've got well if you
0: look mm-hmm. at corn i've heard the same thing about corn and corn is great for deer but as a turkey you get on the ground and you can kind of see into it yeah it's there's nothing on the ground they can shoot through it but it's like there's no reason a bobcat or coyote can't shoot down one of those rows and pick off, you know, any kind of turkeys that gets in that stuff and trying to fly out of it. That's right. And also when you're talking about from the quail aspect, I again I'm I'm all on this freaking this quail stuff recently. I'm telling you, I'm all fired up about it. But it's like these small things that guys can do like you're talking about with this with the disc to be able to add more of that natural brush uh, sh- not really shrubs but the forbs and grasses in and around these plots in and around some of these openings down some of their, their logging roads that they're using to drive up and down on their property just to add a little bit more cover for them
3: Right. and then also with the
0: select cuts have y'all ever done anything with the disking like
3: in and around select cuts have um, not I, I tell you what I've seen there when it came to uh, was drum chopping
0: now what is that
3: or what they call crimping.
0: Okay. Oh, with the rolls. With the okay. rollers. Ah, okay.
3: And I had a discussion with my landowner. We've got we were putting in fire breaks. I said I really wish we had one of these crimpers or one of these rollers mm-hmm. where you know I could go in these select cuts or one of these bigger open thin areas and run this thing through there and just see what it does. I think you're right. You could do that.
2: What What exactly is that?
3: Like. What was, can, or, can
2: you explain i know what a crimper
0: is can you explain like how with the drum
3: with the drum so what you would do is go in like this time of year and and ride that thing through there or you can wait a little bit later so what it's doing is any of this tall woody stuff or or things it is it's like crushing it into the ground and it's not like harrowing it up but what it's doing is creating going back to what we're talking about mm-hmm. the forbes and different things it just cuts down without having to do something. So you're all. not
0: bush hogging. It's got, it's like a big roller. Uh, Grant Woods does it all the time on his place. And it's a big roller. You pull behind a tractor and some guys pull behind ATVs. There's different size ones and it has like these fins. So I imagine like a barrel that's got these fins that it's aren't sharp chopping. and it just rolls over and crimps it. It like breaks that freaking, uh, what what's the, uh, it's how they're sending nutrition up on like all oh, this reg- vegetation uh, on the edge. yeah um, um,
3: Sound of the term, <laughs> I, and I don't either. I'm sitting here, but it's 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 just crimping it, mm-hmm. and then it it it, it breaks that nutrient
0: breaks that line, so those plants can't shoot up from the from the root system any more nutrition. So it just dies off, and you have like this big thatch patch that all this other new growth can grow up underneath. It holds the moisture down and mm-hmm. everything, okay. uh, which is interesting. And again, just kind of how that would work, and I'm, I'm curious on how that would affect, especially like your quail and turkey population and stuff like that. I think that.
3: it would be so dense under there that the birds couldn't walk through it. Yeah and a lot of the quail plantations down south you'll see them do that in the rows or in a select cut they'll go through wide open areas and they'll run down through there just to create um, those thatch patches and have something else coming. It might, you know, once that lower level dies out, they can probably run in there and use it for cover or use it for nesting habitat. Be great for turkeys. Uh,
0: yeah, absolutely. Because again, you just got to think of like a bigger bird, like a turkey, and even pulps. Like a pulps as big, like pulps are as big as quail. I mean, when, oh yeah, once, when they're born, that's. I mean, that, that's what they look like. I mean, like yeah, it's it's. Uh, or when they get a couple weeks old, definitely. Um, but it's it's amazing all these little things that guys can be doing on the property. Now, which brings up, I, I want to get to the point. You know, I think everybody knows of you for like your, you know, the chufa guy, okay, and <laughs> everything. When it comes to like the kind of on the food plot management, what is what like, the telltale sign of like if a guy's wants to on their private say it's a it's a lease, it's a hunting club, it's a privately owned property, and they're wanting to add a more diverse aspect to their food plot regiment for turkeys, uh, and also adding stuff for of course the deer in the fall in the summertime. What does your regiment recommend when it comes to chufa, but also some of the other, again, seeds that you like to recommend, especially if we're talking to the southeast here?
3: And the southeast, I think, you know, where we've – I know we had a discussion before we came on the air. We were talking about where a lot of this stuff takes place is in the south. My idea when it comes and people call me and say, hey, what, what can I do for chufa? What can I plant? And I really roll really close to – in the, the fall would be a clover. I like a mixture uh, of some type of white clover, perennial white, with some type of uh, annual red. And you can do that. And it's, and it's again, diversifying your food plot. Mm-hmm. And that goes back to what we were talking about, you know, planting different things, doing different things to it. In the summertime, you know, chufa. And everybody talks about chufa, chufa. And I need chufa so I have turkeys. And we've seen that. um this year on our property at nwtf last year of course with the pandemic it was hard to get the seed here we weren't able to plant any we had some volunteer patches that we maintained a little bit through some different stages of disking because it will come back but we plant that in the summertime so one of the things that we do is is we're looking you know june july to plant chufa and somebody goes wow man is it gonna make or is it gonna dry out and the first thing i said look think about it you want the chufa to be there prior to turkey season but you do want them and then you want it to have something in the winter time so chufa is usually 90 to 120 days to mature and so we planted in july up until the first week of august in the south and and i just got off the phone with a guy in alabama mm-hmm. um, and we planted it so that's kind of the regime of the summertime. That's kind of my regime in the fall. But what else do I plant for turkeys? I try to come up with a variety of mixes with different seeds. You know, I mentioned the the grain sorghum, buckwheat, uh, kind of a pea deal. So I'll do that kind of midsummer mm-hmm. or right about Chufa time too. Let that mature right before you know. In the South, we don't know what frost is till Christmas, <laughs> so it's got time to mature and that's my edges but you i've seen turkeys and quail working through that stuff in october november when the seed heads on the sword yeah i've seen them oh yeah pecking on it and it's just you know a variety of things
0: do you ever go through uh i I love sorghum especially for a dove hunter and I oh, mean, yeah. the deer, too. I mean, everything. But, like, a sorghum field, you come through and mow a couple of patches or, or lanes in it with a bush hog. Mm-hmm. What is your thought on, like, knocking seed heads down, like, later in the season? I mean, do you just leave them standing, or do you have certain times where you might go through with a
3: bush hog? Usually about January, February. Okay. We'll start knocking it down because I think their food sources are starting to diminish a little bit mm-hmm. more when you get in the winter months. Um, of course, now, if you go under any live oak or water oak tree – Turkeys have got it raked back like a windrow right now, and they're looking for any acorns that might be left. If you go burn and you burn through hardwoods, that's the first place you see them. Um, So I think it's just you got to kind of stage what you plant so they've got something a little bit throughout the year.
0: And that's a smart way to do it instead of going from – what I'm used to back in the southeast, which is like maybe we do some kind of like summer plot, but it's pretty much by the time, you know, September, October, we're planting there, you know, people are planting winter wheat, which a lot of times is ryegrass, and that's it. And then that's not, that's really, a big
1: mistake. And it's but,
0: not, but it's not, and it's not adding really any nutritional no, value. They're eating that. That's like a, that's a last resort in a lot, right. of, a lot of cases. Um, but it's being more thoughtful on having food sources. This, this is supplementing, like using food plots almost as like a supplement form. Throughout the whole year, so you have the whole stage of life that you're trying to provide for them. Even uh, on small properties, I can see you doing that pretty easily with the, with the amount of openings. And
3: you can, and and you you implement that with um, you know some type of burning regime, uh, rotational burning. It you know again, it's changing the landscape. Mm-hmm. You know we're making changes, but then it's also diversifying. And I've you know people ask me about turkey and quail, and I said, well, it's about you know the area open area when it comes to pines or even when it comes to hardwoods having a lot enough open area for them to work through and do their thing you know what you plant and what you just said and providing that food source for them throughout the year uh, our turkeys now at home are in the chufa patches like i had a guy that does uh, the bluebirding for us uh at nwtf and he called he said and he doesn't understand turkeys he said but there's an area right there by the pond that looks like somebody took a disc harrow through there and we've been going by there, there's like 15 or 20 turkeys there so i think it's just key you, you want to provide that supplemental food now april may when you start to see the new growth kick in that, that's where they go You'll kind of see them
0: And that's where that fire comes up, Like that's doing fires that, right now
3: Because if you're burning out That's yep. that little green I know I can remember You know Coming home And I having black All over my camo My mossy camo Turkey hunting Because that little green growth popping out of the ground And that's where those Those hens are going there to feed And that's where those gobblers are following
0: I remember the first time I was hunting some national forest Where they had run up fire Through like in February <clears throat> Hunting in Alabama First couple days of season And it was already shooting up and it was like the most beautiful green carpet of just lush vegetation and that's where the turkeys are at loaded in there and then as it continues to grow up by the time poles are on the ground it's got now got enough cover they can kind of hide underneath everything uh, it is what's
2: what's up well you know you know i'm not a turkey hunter uh-huh. but i'm a deer hunter and uh these wma's national forests they have a uh I, I guess like a piece of paper with basically a map of the area mm-hmm. and they have everything that's supposed to be burned for the year. So we could go back and find all the particular areas that were burned that's, and that's use smart. that as an advantage so, for I, so a we, season.
0: I, we've got guys that we've interviewed in the past. And we'll probably going to interview again this year. They're, they call themselves burn chasers and that's exactly it. On public land, like I know one guy, he goes in, it's smoldering. It's still smoking and he's going in there because they'll get in there, start scratching around and some of that stuff. That's but,
3: amazing about a burn chaser. And you see that at home because the U.S. Forest Service does a lot of it. Um, And and it's true. Burning, as I said, guys, earlier, that is the most cost-effective way to create great wildlife habitat, whether it's quail, turkey, deer, songbirds, whatever it may be. And at home in the south, and you probably see it in Alabama, and I've had guys in Missouri call me, we are like madmen right now trying to get something burned on your property before opening day of turkey season mm-hmm. because that you know talking about well i'm gonna go throw corn out um wow, i'm gonna burn mine and watch where they go so i think that's key is is you know the burning plays a big role in it and i'm gonna you know get back home and get mine burned
2: i've got a really funny story what you got? uh so about eight years ago i was on uh national forest and uh i was hunting i'm going this during deer, deer season i'm a hunting deer but i'm an all-day hunter especially like around the rut or anything like that and uh i got in there way early <laughs> well some dogs come through that morning chasing deer and then a little bit later like an hour later this is like eight nine o'clock in the morning somebody came around the property because it's it's basically got roads on every every you know side of me and uh but it's like about a half mile away well i heard them beeping the horn as they went around i thought it was somebody looking for the dogs you know like you know like, <laughs> hey come on like here i am Nope. uh so i get out at like two or three o'clock you know i wanted to hunt till that you know that ten to two for sure right so i I'm I'm coming out like three o'clock, and as I'm getting up near the road where I was parked at, there are like 50 people up there on the road. There's bulldozers, trailers, oh boy, trucks. They are trying to burn that area, starting at like early in the morning <laughs> They're like, oh, and I, right. I guess they're not allowed to if, no. if somebody's in there and i was holding them i had no clue they were we got burning to do yeah i had no clue hey
3: that's funny you say that i'll tell you a, a real quick story back in my dnr days they you know of course you know the u.s forest service uses a helicopter drops ping pong balls which is cool so my workstation in the field was out on national forest and it was in the woods well we're sitting there and a guy pulls up he'd been turkey scouting and he walked up and he said hey he said can you tell me what kind of egg this is and he had picked up one of those that, you know had been injected but it didn't ignite and it could have went off in his hand and i was like you want to put that down Oh
0: wow. it's a little fireball. A little fireball. We wow. have
3: explained you don't want that's not an egg.
0: Yeah. Oh that's crazy. It's
3: gonna hatch in your hand here <laughs> in a <America>. minute. <laughs>
0: <laughs> no. Well see, so, like the whole the whole fire thing I found this this is super interesting, but as we've talked on other podcasts too, it's like it's for a, a small landowner or just a landowner in general who hasn't done it, doesn't understand there's a ton of resources for people to help you because it's it's overwhelming for a lot of people. Like I don't want to burn down my property, I want to burn down my neighbor's property. And as we've talked to some people, Smoky the Bear definitely didn't help people want to no. do prescribed fires on their property anymore. Um, but there's a ton of resources. Can you mention, like, what are some resources for people sure. in different states, talking to the southeast region here, of, like, potential people they could contact or, sure. or, or organizations to figure some stuff out with this?
3: I, you know, we get asked this all the time, the calls, that, and when we start talking about burning, it, you know, reach out to your local state forestry commission. Uh, they have resources. They have training classes to teach you how to burn. Uh, matter of fact, to get back home, that's another part of what we do at NWTF with that property. It's not just our hunting. It's it's landowner workshops to talk about habitat management and show them our demonstration areas. So reach out to your local forestry commission, get a certification, take a learn to burn class. Uh, U.S. Forest Service has some resources that you can at NWTF, you can reach out to myself. Uh, We have resources there to help you or talk to you about burning and what you need to do. And I would reach out to, when it comes to any of the habitat work or or burning itself, what I used to do for millican forestry find a wildlife or forestry professional and and talk with them and and know most landowners when it comes to burning are scared to death of fire you say fire and they run Um, i i mean it's not the fire it's the smoke there's a lot of legality to it Uh, you've got to be careful with getting the right permits and and writing burning plans but to me if if i go from transition from deer season to duck season and then i put up i'm gone to fire season i'm gone to burning season and i've got a fire pot in my hand now till i put my turkey call blew my turkey calls out and and that's you know I love to burn I mean I after I'm done and then I can go back and you mentioned sitting there those burn areas and that turkey walking through there so it's important and I think those resources are just reach out don't try to try to do it on your own but there's lots and lots of lots of information
0: there's a science I found out recently there's a science to burning it's not just to go drop a match or drip torch or whatever and, and burn there's the conditions you want which Michael in your situation you know he and not got <laughs> pissed because probably the conditions were absolutely Perfect, yeah, <laughs> and maybe by three o'clock it wasn't the perfect conditions for them to be lighting because so, right. uh, a lot of stuff happens. I know, uh, uh Matt and Adam from Lane Lacey's talked a lot just to me about mm-hmm. that. Uh, there's a science suit, there really is a trying it to find is. the right conditions at head fire, versus There's all a different terminology for it. the different types of fires that you can light. Uh, backing, I don't know, you maybe you can mix. There's different there's different versions, so there's back of
3: fires, there's flank fires, there's head fires, there's stripping, there's spotting. Um, you know techniques of firing of how you fire backfire is always important because you want to start slow um, you look at the amount of humidity in the air that day the wind direction for that day uh, there's you have to look at the inversion that means is, is your smoke going to rise and go away is your smoke going to rise and come back to the ground at night and cause an accident it is it is a science to it there's a lot of variables that will tell you if you can or cannot mark there's no telling how many times i've gotten out got my pots ready we're ready to getting ready to to drop it to the ground and the wind changed direction and then that's it you can't do anything
2: i was surprised y'all can even come up with a plan in the south then talk about the whole
3: yeah out of the east the, the worst one you could ever have but it it is there is a science but if you can do it and do it correctly i think what scares people is going back to those techniques how do i do this and make it effective you know you want to you don't want to scorch the trees pine trees you scorch them then you open the door for insects Um, when it comes to longleaf pine particularly where you guys are and we have some in south carolina if you get it too hot you'll scorch the roots you don't want to scorch through you don't want to damage the trees but you want it to be effective and i know a lot of guys who will go and burn on marginal days and it doesn't do anything i'll have people say hey travis i'm burning but it's it's like i am burning through an area then it quit and then i had to pick up." i said it's at that to me is patchwork burning and You know, what you did is you got a clean there, but you left that area the way it's supposed to be. So it is if you go watch somebody one time if I get you guys up to South Carolina oh, I, like hey man come on we're here on site doing a live burn
0: dude I, I'm there I, I, <laughs> I, I, I kind of invited myself and yeah Matt. we could do a live burn <laughs> I was like, and I <clears throat> told Matt like the next time they're in Central Alabama call me because if y'all need help I'll just want to come out and witness it
3: I will say this in Alabama NWTF when I came to work we had a piece of property down in Escambia County mm-hmm. way down in Pensacola mm. and it's exactly what we just talked about We walked on it. They took me down there, and they said, Travis, what do you think? And I was like, wow. (laughs) And we started thinning, and we started clear-cutting, and then we got into mulching, and then we got to clean it up. And I had a guy there that was kind of the manager there to take care of the place, and I said, the best thing for this place is herbicide and fire. That's how we'll we'll reclaim it. So we started burning, and I know in Alabama, if we got Alabama listeners, which I'm sure you boys do, they have a two-day – requirement to go through what's called like a prescribed fire manager's course. So you want to make sure it's 2 days South Carolina's one. What that is is it trains you talks about the weather, how to pick your days, how to write a fire plan to be really cautious. And it kind of it doesn't say that it puts liability on me, but it just shows that you've got someone that's been trained and knows how to hand knows what to do if the weather changes on you. Guys, I can tell you right now, speaking from experience, when it comes to burning, I have been on uh, a burn one day and a thunderstorm rolled up and the wind changed direction and you need to have to put it in high of gear because your backfire turned into a head fire it's it's those things you learn yeah about. and it
0: can be dangerous i mean so andrew which he's not here as uh, one of our other hosts uh he went to auburn and did when their forestry school and actually mm-hmm. went through their whole prescribed fire course like their whole class which is semester long so he's sending me fires that they were doing head fires in some situations to show them like how intense it can get right and it is i mean it those are like the ones that you got to uh, seems like to worry about is when you have something that switches like that to a head fire right. and you're not prepared for it and you got 10, 15 foot tall flames yep. rushing and then through you're the woods. Going,
3: it's, it's, I guess I can say this on the air. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's the pucker factor. Yeah, yeah. And that's what happens. And, you know, I've been doing it, well, what, maybe 30 years now? There's still not a day that I don't get the pucker factor, and if you don't get it, you need to quit. Mm-hmm. You know, because you know I watch our crews burn, but it, I'm telling you, it is the most effective thing for when it comes to turkeys and quail and wildlife habitat management, forestry management in you, pines. You've got to have it. Yep. longleaf, it's essential.
0: Absolutely, it was part of that landscape. I mean, that was the whole thing with the, or with longleaf pines. Is they grow in areas with high disturbance with fire and that's like what they need to be able to kind of do what they do um, and you know that's one thing we're going to be growing on our property I've already talked to my uncle we're going to be planting longleaf for one of those reasons instead of doing loblogs, we're done with loblogs. we're going to do all longleaf um, and, and manage it more for that almost like longleaf savanna um, right. where it, it's totally different habitat again an island inside of a monoculture around there and uh, it's going to be super interesting to kind of see some of that but yeah fire is a huge aspect of it but I know your time is very sensitive here Travis I do want to talk about little bit more on the mentor program and everything y'all got going on with nwtf sure what is your position there what's kind of been going on there and and what is kind of taking place with this program
3: we you know uh, besides all the habitat stuff the the mentor program is a very important thing you know we as hunters you guys it's great sitting because you hunt but you're also interested in managing the land we continue to work through now which is exciting for us because the pandemic kind of shut those things down we continue to reach out to a variety of groups to get them involved in hunting you know for the longest it was all about kids let's get the kids involved that's important what we found with children was that through our summer camps when they came to summer camp mom and dad dropped them off was you ask them say hey do you hunt couple would raise their hand hey do you want to learn how to hunt hands fly up. i asked the first question i asked them. i said why why do you guys not get to go hunting we don't have anybody to take us mom and dad don't hunt so what we started focusing on was let's get the entire family out there and it was awesome we took an entire i wish they were here because i would want them to come sit down and talk to you guys we've done a couple of shows with them and done some articles the guy came out, brought his wife, brought his daughter, brought his two sons, no, $2 and a son, went through hunter's education class with us, we came and did our, we do dove hunts, we do deer hunts, we do turkey hunts, we do small game squirrel hunts, and we do, of course, waterfowl hunts. This group of family went through the entire process and, and finished up. Now the dad is a mentor for us to help us take someone out so we are looking at families the other area that we look at is college students the new the new group of college students uh you know we find out believe it or not guys i have seen from the the colleges like clemson Mm -hmm. georgia auburn all these big wildlife schools they have students going there and going to school in wildlife enforcement who don't hunt now explain that but i actually hunted with a clemson student clemson forester when we did a college learn to hunt turkey beginner 101 and took him out and i was standing there beside him and i said so you're in forestry, right and he said oh yeah i said but you've never hunted he said no sir And we got him on a turkey so we're continuing to find a variety of groups we you know whether it's the college students the families we do a lot with military it's basically taking them through a learn to hunt the basic 101s it's about the gear you need the safety aspect of it of how to handle a firearm how to handle a bow and arrow uh when you should hunt when you should not you know the rules and regulations the other big part of this thing is cooking it Mm
2: -hmm. how to eat it that'd be a big one for me (laughs) they're they're the cooks like you me just, you're the taster yeah I'm just I just nah, eat nah. He, the cook. he
0: goes kills them and we just cook them yeah. I mean no but that's a, that's a huge huge aspect of it
3: and, and I would challenge anybody out there and the other part about the mentoring side is that we're teaching them and bringing them back to learn habitat and the conservation side because if we don't do that, they don't have an understanding. And we're starting to branch out a little bit further. We're starting to reach different audiences. We're looking to talk to diverse groups now. Um, we have a lot of meetings going on here this weekend about that. We have a lot of seminars that are doing that. So it's not what we do in Edgeville. It's our whole, whole organization. There's the R3 movement that's out there. Uh, recruit, retain, reactivate. Um, recruit new hunters, retain them and reactivate people that maybe went so it makes it real neat at nwtf getting to work with those new hunters somebody asked me he said man i bet you get a turkey hunt all the time i said i do i said i bet you fill every one of your tags and i said let me hold you right there i said i don't but for me to take somebody like if i was to take you out set you down and we get a big old gobbler in front of you and he's strutting and bellowing and doing his thing and you shoot that turkey and you put your tag on it, that's just like me putting my tag on Mm -hmm, one. That mm -hmm. means more to me now. And I've done it for a long time and killed enough of them. That's what I think we need to do. But we also need, goes back to what we've been talking about today, is teaching those new guys about habitat management, why conservation is important for the resource, manage the resource so we can't hunt it. Um, And then the other part is to get them to come back And be a mentor when I say a mentor or a guide, it's somebody like ourselves that hunts particularly deer that you don't mind sitting there and being patient with somebody and talking about, hey, here's the do's and don'ts. watch them for the safety app make it encouraging make it fun you know watch let them watch your call that's the other part that we hope once we do that because the reason we see this and we're all sitting here we're all here at this convention and the things we've been doing today and, and what we're talking about hunter numbers are on a decline guys we're we're about to be a very rare breed of folks people don't hunt like they used to it's great what you guys are doing with your podcast is getting the word out if people don't hunt We don't have a resource. They don't buy a hunting license. What our organization, the other part, not just doing the fun stuff of toting a fire pot and jumping on the tractor, it's getting these people out there, getting them involved and making them understand that that resource that we enjoy, whether it's I go in here a turkey gobble or I'm sitting on a deer stand watching that cold air come out of his nose up there in Illinois or the whistling of wings coming into the decoys, that's the fun part. You know, pulling the trigger and tagging and putting them in the frying pan or on that trigger or rec tech grill that's the bones
0: i'm glad you brought all that up and i'm glad you y'all are now targeting an older audience because the one issue I've, I've always had with uh r3 is the kid aspect nothing against the kids but kids can't take them hunting so if you don't have parents on board too it's hard for them to be able to, you know, stay with the hunting aspect where when you target like the college age students, I'm talking young kids, I'm talking like, yes, you know, kids that are in middle school, grade school, even in high school, some may have a vehicle, some don't. But when you target those adults or later onset hunters, those are the ones that are like doing it for the food. They're doing it for potential family use spend more time outdoors. And those are the ones I feel like that you can really get hooked very quickly. And they see the value of this resource uh, compared to just focusing on just the children themselves. And then you have to talk the parents into like, well, Hey, we got to buy. Uh, you know, jack a gun, a bow. When you go place to hunt, hunt you know, lease a club, right. buy some property where you get the whole family involved. I think that's fantastic, uh, and get those just those older uh, older age uh, adults that are just late onset hunters involved with it. I think there's a huge passion there, and especially when it comes to the food, everything is well, happening right now with the, with the uh, supply chains and, and meat prices and everything. I've got over three hundred <laughs> something pounds of, of meat in my freezer right now from this oh, past yeah. season. It's like that's not that's not a worry
2: well it's it's this too like i mean if you get a family involved then it's like generational like you're passing it down because i mean like my dad you know he he grew up hunting yeah. passed it down to me and my brother we passed it down i mean it's just it keeps going like i mean you get a, a family group like that and you know they can they can see the value in that and they enjoy it especially if they're taught from a young age You know, those are going to be your hardcore hunters, I feel like, and you... You know be more successful by starting out with a family
0: i'll tell you something else i wish i would do with this program i don't know if you already do this is is teach somebody how to go attain a lease teach somebody how to manage a hunting club uh, or be a part of a hunting club how to buy your own property because i see like you do this hunting program but like well, now where do we hunt Public land or we want to go get a lease or something that's,
3: that's a good point to this this whole thing okay they come to nwtf there a lot of them hunt on private land that we've I've, that's one thing that i've established is a landowner base that will allow us to hunt on their property. But they come back, once they finish our program, what are they going to do next? So what I've incorporated into our Learn to Hunt programs is I will have our local wildlife department come, SCDNR, come talk about rules and regulation, but then they talk about public land hunting opportunities. In South Carolina, where are the public lands? How do you hunt them? the state of south carolina has hunting opportunity drawn hunts Mm -hmm. that they can apply for and and go on a special deer hunt duck hunt public dove fields Mm -hmm. you know all these opportunities so that's that's a valued point because in the beginning you always you kind of do one and you do an after action say what what else would you have liked to learn what did you not like what did you want more of that was something else so we did that so when we partnered up with american forest management Mm -hmm one of the things that i saw because the we started doing like a deer class and i said can you put me something together that talks about how to go about getting a hunting lease or obtaining a hunting so if you go to nwtf dot where are we now org you can pull up and we have a thing a flyer that we put together a pdf that talks about how someone can go about getting into a lease and how and to find out where to find it. awesome and that was important you know and and public land mm-hmm. public land hunting safety gosh all i do is get emails hey travis put this one together put this one together and you sit there and think about it from your aspect as a hunter you hunt public land what are the safety aspects? How do I get to do it? What permits do I have to have? And that information is something we have on our website. And, Of course, we're uploading a brand new website, mm-hmm. so all this information we have in NWTF that a new hunter could pull up.
2: Awesome. I think the uh, you know Onyx hunt stand things like that uh, yeah. make it so much easier for us now. I think that was one of the big turnoffs for hunting public land. Not not to mention, I mean, it had like right. a negative stigma to it but um,
0: still does with it, some generations yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah, it does you walking
2: know, out there. I mean you got property lines the, all these boundaries you don't know where to go so that is cool because a lot of times I know when I
3: work for the, the DNR and you take all these maps around, some of these boundaries may not be correct but now Hunt stand on X, you know uh, what's great? You can pull the property owner, and you know that might not show the line, but you know where your boundary is going to mm-hmm. be. That turkey's and nine times out of ten, turkey's gobbling on him, but it does help. Yeah, we have um, part of our programming too. We've we're really trying to uh, incorporate hunt stand on X. Uh, we we've used that as part of our plan as as the teaching tools for the beginner and just so you guys know we're we have right now if there's somebody out there that's wanting to learn how to turkey hunt i'll add this in Calcamai. we teamed up with calcama about three years ago and we put together a turkey 101 online course Uh, it has videos it talks about gear for your uh, vest it talks about decoy placement it talks about how to use on it how to find your you know hunt stand things like that so these are some other opportunities that a new hunter trying to get started can go and learn not necessarily come to work like that but we're in the works now of what we're finding and this is great that we're doing our job is that this new generation of hunter that we've started and getting started, they want more. So now we're looking to go like a 101. We're talking about going to a 201, an advanced class. Get mm. into some more specifics. You know, the guys from Hunt Stand have offered to come and, you know, us shoot some video or, or we could put up on a PowerPoint about how to use the app and use it a little bit more advancedly. Like, so, it, it, it's like a snowball. It just continues to grow as we move on. And we just got to look at different opportunities of what, when, and how what we want to use, that's for sure. Awesome.
0: Well, perfect. Well, Travis, uh, I appreciate you coming <laughs> on. This has been an awesome conversation. Uh, do you have anything else? If somebody wants to get in contact with you or learn more about some of the habitat work uh, that's being done or just really has any general questions after this episode for you, how would they get in contact with
3: sure. you? Sure. You can reach me at the National Wild Turkey Federation. Uh, you can email me at t Sumner. Again, that's Sumner at nwtf.net, or you can give us a call there at 803-637-3106 and just ask for me, um, and again, i'll be glad to answer your questions if you got habitat questions if you're not a member i encourage you to join we're putting things in the magazine every week i think my next article is on chufa so believe it or not and that'll come out about the time we start planting Chufa. but i appreciate you guys uh coming on and and hey anytime you want to come up to edgefield and burn with me or or even uh see a learn to hunt class be Mm -hmm. glad to have you absolutely
0: awesome well
2: appreciate you mike but, oh, oh, he told him out y'all stay southern <laughs> <laughs> y'all stay that's, south. the, that's that's the, that's how i usually end it but usually he doesn't end it like just quite like that well so. appreciate y'all listening yep. yeah
1: y'all, <laughs> y'all stay
2: southern you mess it up again
1: thanks for listening to another episode of the southern outdoorsman podcast make sure you subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes coming out and help us grow the community by sharing this podcast with a friend Y'all go ahead and write down the dates, June 28th through June the 30th. Go ahead and just mark those off your calendar so you can be at the Dalton Convention Center in Dalton, Georgia for the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard a, a ton of content from that expo last year that we posted. Uh, we talked about it a ton. Look, if you're the kind of person that listens to this podcast, this show was literally made for you. It was literally designed for for you, which means you're gonna love it. You know, all the best companies in mobile hunting are gonna be there. A lot of the best deer killers in the southeast are gonna be there. A lot of our past podcast guests are gonna be there. It's just it's gonna be an incredible event. And hey, if you've been looking to either get into a saddle or maybe a mobile lock-on setup or just a different kind of tree stand setup, I'm telling you it's worth the investment to go to this show because they're all gonna be there and you you will get to try all of them in person before you buy it. So you don't have to order something online and then wait for it and then try it when it comes in to see if you really like it, you're going to get to go put your hands on everything all in one day, test it all out and figure out exactly what works best for you and have it taken care of before deer season starts. So like I said, go ahead and put it on your calendar, guys. It's a no brainer. You got to be at the show. Again, it's Friday, June 28th through Sunday, June 30th in Dalton, Georgia. We absolutely cannot wait to meet you guys there and talk hunting. So we'll see you at the 2024 Mobile Hunters Expo in Dalton, Georgia.